Hello and welcome to our Reorg Europe podcast. My name is Luca Rossi and I'm a senior reporter here at Reorg. With me, I have emerging market reporter Bianca Borer, financial analyst Rob Sommers and legal analyst Sean Kureshi. In this episode of our Reorg European podcast, we will take a look at the latest woes of Italian construction company CMC di Ravenna dig into two real estate companies in the Middle East, Damak Properties in Dubai and Esdan Holdings in Qatar, and finally delve into some of the highlights of Noble Group's restructuring process. First of all, let's have a quick look at what happened in the market over the past few days. Boparan's decision to fully repay its 2019 notes angered some 2021 holders who are worried about a potential refi. An analyst threatened legal action on Boparan's earnings call this week, but the company ensured that it had taken clear legal advice on how to read the indenture. Italian ailing construction company Astaldi said it is reconsidering leasing its business units to two newly incorporated NUCOs. This came as several of the company's customers and partners have filed objections and complaints, as the leasing process is uncertain in many legal systems and has raised fears regarding contractual assignments or terminations. Johnston's Press bondholders have taken over the UK media group and formed JPI Media. As part of the transaction, the bondholders have agreed to reduce the level of senior secure debt by over 60% and extended debt maturity to December 2023. Rob, let's now talk about CMC di Ravenna. CMC's notes are now trading between 10 and 11. The company issued two bonds last year between 6 and 7%. And these were still around 90 in late July. So what happened? Well, Luca, the company's most recent difficulty started in mid-September when it announced its second quarter results. At that point, the bonds were already stressed, partially due to contagion from Astaldi. But poor results and working capital issues in particular caused the notes to fall 10 to 12 points to the mid to low 60s. The results call then was dominated by questions about the company's cash flows and liquidity position and concerns about the company's RCF covenant and refinancing plans. At the time, management said that working capital at the end of June would have been flat from year-end 2017 levels had 137 million euros of delayed payments been collected on time. By mid-September, the time of the call, the company had collected 29 million of this amount and management said that it expected to collect the remaining 108 million by September 30th. However, on October 15th, it said that it still hadn't received any additional proceeds, causing the notes to fall by another 20 points. The plot thickened on October 31st when CMC received 51 million from Italian state-owned road agency Anas. But this was followed on November 9th with a notice that it would be delaying its November 15th coupon payment due to cash flow issues. This then caused the notes to drop to the teens. That's interesting. Thanks, Rob. So uh, CMC received a substantial sum, but still have uh, liquidity uh, problems. What's the current working capital situation? Well, the problem is that we just don't know. The 137 million of delayed payments is the latest figure we have, and that is as of June 30th, 
so quite a while ago. While the company received a 51 million cash inflow in late October, as mentioned, the fact that it had to delay its coupon payment indicates that delayed payments have materially increased. We're only likely to know more when the company releases its next set of results, which are expected on November 28th. Does the business have any other substantial problems? That's an interesting question, Luca. Most other measures are actually supportive. For example, revenue has generally been stable at around $1.1 billion from 2014 to the most recent 12 months, with revenue from sales and services at the highest level over the last 12 months than during any full financial year. While LTM EBITDA was $155 million, a drop from $172 million in 2017, this still represents a higher level and better margin than any other period outside of 2017. Also, cash from operations constituted inflows until 2017 when it was negative 11.4 million. Therefore, the recent cash outflows do not yet constitute a trend. In addition, the company's backlog at 4.7 billion is as high as it's ever been, having broken through the 4 billion level for only the first time this year. So it seems to be that the main problem of the company is when, with working capital. Is there anything CMC Ravenna can do? Look, Luca, collecting receivables will always be an issue with construction companies and will always be a sort of black box that is difficult to model. This is compounded in emerging markets, which can lack the rule of law and are subject, or can be, to arbitrary political decision-making. For example, in Kenya, management attributed delayed advances to ministerial reshuffles. But you also have these issues in certain developed markets, like Italy, where CMC has had difficulties collecting from ANAS. Now, CMC has said that its last general contractor projects with ANAS are due to be completed in 2019, but in reality, these issues will always recur. There is also the question of whether the company is at fault for the delayed payments. For example, there are discrepancies in the company's backlog, with the SS640 Section 1 motorway project identified as 100% completed with completion due in 2017 in the company's third quarter 17 result report. In its most recent disclosure, though, the project is listed not as 100% completed, but as 99.9% finished with expected completion in 2018. That's interesting, Rob. Um, you recently updated your waterfall analysis on CMC to account for the company's difficulties. What did you find out? Well, Luca, with the bonds trading in the teens, the market is clearly pricing in a liquidation. And this is reflected in our downside case. Here, the company runs out of cash and bondholders recover 13 to 22%. A particular issue is that 1.3 billion of performance guarantees will crystallize and eat into the value available for creditors. By contrast, our upside and base cases see no holders recovering at par. Now, the major difference in recoveries between the base and downside cases is, interestingly, down to receivables and work in progress. For example, keeping all other variables constant but improving downside case receivables to the levels we set in our base case improves recoveries to 72%.
This is largely driven by the fact that the company no longer faces a liquidity crisis that could result in a liquidation. In other words, getting receivables under control is key to CMC remaining a going concern. Is it really as simple as that? Kind of. It's also interesting that our base case projects a thin 35 million equity cushion. This shows that here too, the company will likely need new money to bridge the gap caused by its working capital issues. So you talked about uh, this new money. What would uh, uh, the new money facility look like? That's a tricky question. First, it's difficult to add more debt to a company that already has 5.4 times net leverage and to issue secured debt in a business with limited potential collateral. Second, we doubt that the company's cooperative shareholder base has sufficient capital. Nonetheless, it is possible that there is in fact here a sustainable business model that is just going through some short-term difficulties. If this is the case, then there is potential upside for both existing note holders and to a provider of new capital. It's definitely going to be an interesting ride. Thanks, Rob. So here we have uh, now Bianca Borer, one of our emerging market reporters, uh, to talk about two real estate companies in the Middle East, Damak Properties in Dubai and Ezdan Holdings in uh, Qatar. So Bianca, what's going on uh, with them? Hi, Luca. So um, Damak Properties is suffering from a general downturn in the real estate market in Dubai, as well as a shift to focusing on the middle income segment of the population. Damak only focuses on providing luxury properties to the higher income consumer. Despite recent regulatory changes to try and spur investment in property among the expat community in Dubai, the market has been oversaturated, pushing rents and property prices down. SN Holdings is also facing a fall in demand from the expat community, but due to political reasons. After the Saudi-led blockade against Qatar in June last year, there was an outflow of expats from the country. Aside from the political picture, the company has also been facing liquidity issues. Interesting. Uh, let's dive uh, in uh, further. First, tell us a bit more about uh, the Mac. So as I mentioned, Damak specializes in developing and constructing luxury mixed-use community developments and towers in Dubai. Majority of its operations are in the Emirate, where it earned 85% of its revenue last year. The land Damak builds on has to be bought from government-linked master developers like Imar and Nakheel, who require the land uh, directly from the government. This puts Damak on the back foot compared to its competitors. You mentioned the middle market, it's on the rise. Could you tell us a bit more about that? The middle income population are those who earn between 15,000 to 25,000 dirhams per month, which is 4,000 to $6,800. They have been the target segment for developers in recent months, according to Dubai-based property consultants, Cavendish Maxwell. Price sensitivity has risen among buyers after the introduction of 5% VAT in the city, and the removal of fuel and, and energy subsidies has increased the cost of living and reduced disposable incomes. The housing supply is expected to be matched to some extent by increasing demand related to the World Expo 2020 in Dubai. But this is, one, is a one-off event which does not guarantee people will want to stay and buy property in Dubai. 
So how are the company's financials at the moment? The group's most recent results weren't so great. Uh, revenue for the third quarter fell by around 30% year over year to 1.54 billion dirhams and book sales half to 917 million dirhams. Its uh, cash position also deteriorated. It burned 460 million dirhams in the third quarter alone. Its cash and bank balances are currently 6.2 billion dirhams, of which 5.6 billion is restricted for specific developments. Gross debt rose slightly to 4.9 billion from 4.8 billion at the end of last year. Let's look at the company's uh, capital structure. What debt securities does it have? The group has three unsecured sukuk that make up the largest part of its debt structure, a 650 million 5% sukuk maturing next year, a 500 million sukuk maturing in 2022, and a 400 million sukuk with a 6.6 coupon maturing in 2023. On the back of its results, the 2023 notes traded down two points to 92.93.5, and its 22 sukuk also dipped by a point to 93.595. You mentioned the 2020 uh, World Expo, uh, and you said that it might not be the long-term answer to the company's uh, main problems. Could the government actually step in to help? Um, Damak is not state-owned. Its founder, Hussein Sajwani, owns 72% of the shares and the remaining 28% is listed in Dubai and London. However, it is still considered important for executing Dubai's growth plans. Sources I spoke to in Dubai doubt the government will step in um, and they think it's not in a situation that would require assistance now. Um, we don't consider it a distress name, but it's one that we're looking out for. Interesting. Thanks, Bianca. So let's talk uh, again about uh, Ethdan. What's going on there? Ethdan operates in Qatar as a developer, owner and operator of a large number of different real estate projects in residential, commercial, retail and hospitality sectors. Sheikh Thani bin Abdullah Al Thani founded the company in the 60s and in 2007 listed it on Qatar's exchange. He controls the company through a 54% stake. About 88% of Qatar's 2.3 million population comprises of expats, so the outflow after the blockade hit them hard. You mentioned that transaction earlier that has also contributed to the company's current uh, situation. Could you tell us more about this? Yeah, so last year the group paid 6 billion Qatari rials to a related entity called SAC Holdings for a 32.5% stake in a project called Esdan Oasis. This transaction was criticized by rating agencies for using funds to purchase the stake rather than pay down debt. JP Morgan's analysts also pointed out that the transaction was overvalued at the equivalent of $1.7 billion when the project was estimated to cost around $1 billion. So how has this transaction impacted this, uh, the company's financials? The company is in a tight liquidity position. For the first nine months of this year, the group used 1.4 billion Qatari rials to bridge the gap to refinance some Sukuk instruments. This led to a cash burn of 310 million Qatari rials, uh, bringing cash to 60 million Qatari rials from 367 million at the beginning of the year. The owner contributed to this by injecting the equivalent of 60 million Qatari rials into the company through a secured non-interest bearing loan. 
Could you tell us a bit more about the company's uh, debt position? The group has two Sukuk, a uh, $500 million 5% Sukuk due in 2022 and a 4% $500 million Sukuk due in 2021. The 2022s initially took a dive to 85 from 91.5 in February and then a further drop to 77.5 in May. It then recovered to 82 in August on the back of interest from Qatari funds and have stayed around those levels. Uh, both notes have not been very liquid. Going forward, will the company be able to service its debt, in your opinion? Aside from its bonds, it has more imminent loan debt worth around 1.4 billion Qatari rials in the near term, according to JP Morgan's analysts. They, however, remain confident the group can scrape by with almost zero free cash flow for the next two years and banks would likely have no choice but to extend these loans. Other sources, however, said that they weren't so sure it's as easy as that. The facilities were initially provided by regional lenders, including the UAE, who are on the other side of the blockade. Um, and this puts doubt on whether they will roll over the debt, as the UAE government instructed banks to cut down their exposure to Qatari clients. And the Qatari banks might also not be an option as they reach their lending limits with the credit. Um, the group's net leverage is at 15 times, according to JP Morgan's calculations. They reckon the group was close to or may have already breached the covenants on one of its three syndicated loans at the beginning of the year after the SAC transaction. Uh, we should know in the next six months whether the company is able to restructure its debt with the banks. So what are their main options if banks don't play ball? Uh, most investors that I've spoken to are hoping for a government injection to save the company if it needs the cash. Um, but there's no guarantee this will happen despite Althani being related to the ruling family. If we're being optimistic, a lift in the blockade would obviously help the credit. But there hasn't been any major indication that this will happen. And the World Cup 2022, which is going to be held in Qatar, is also expected to bring in business to the country. But that won't help it in the near term. Thanks, Bianca. Now we will move over to Shan, who is going to take us through some of the highlights of Noble Group's restructuring, particularly in relation to their recent English uh, law scheme of arrangement. Shan, what's the background here? Thanks, Luca. In short, the Noble Group is one of the world's biggest commodity traders, with corporate hubs in London, Hong Kong and Singapore. The group manages a portfolio of global supply chains, which involves marketing, processing, financing and transporting key commodities across the globe. So what sort of financial difficulties was the group uh, facing? What debt did it have? Well, the company's liabilities are all unsecured. It was the borrower under an English law governed 1.143 billion RCF and the issuer of three series of unsecured notes, with a total principal outstanding of around $2.3 billion. It was estimated at the time of the company's sanction hearing, on November the 12th, that the financial situation of the company had continued to get worse, with the company having made losses of about $300 million in the last nine months, and had group liabilities in excess of $1 billion. How has the group uh, sought to implement its uh, debt restructuring? In short, Noble Group has used the English law scheme of arrangement process to implement part of its restructuring. 
The scheme is part of a broader restructuring of the group, and it's intended that all of the company's assets will be transferred to the subsidiaries of a newly incorporated company, which is being referred to as New Noble. Scheme creditors will have had their existing claims against the company released, and they will be issued with certain new debt interests issued by New Noble, and also equity interests in New Noble. And what were the terms of this uh, debt restructuring? What uh, were scheme creditors being offered? Under the Noble scheme, the return expected for a scheme creditor would depend on whether or not the creditor chose to participate in certain risk participation structures. These structures would, in brief terms, require scheme creditors to stump up more cash in order to fully benefit. It meant that participating creditors are expected to return between 47.4 cents and 58.4 cents on the dollar in return for which they would be required to risk the equivalent of between 14.7 cents and 18.2 cents on the dollar. Now, non-participating creditors will get a return of between 24.7 and 33.8 cents on the dollar. So how did Noble fare before the English court when it tried to implement its restructuring by way of scheme of arrangement? The first thing to note is that the scheme was a success. It was sanctioned by the English court and it did pass the statutory hurdles and common law tests required of a company wishing to use the scheme. However, Justice Snowden, the judge sitting in the courts for both the company's convening and sanction hearings, did have some comments and some criticisms which are worth considering. The key issues that the judge had were in addressing the risk participation element of the scheme, the ad hoc group and its working feeds, and the timing of and complexity of the scheme. Okay, so what were the issues with the risk participation? One of the main elements under the scheme was the consideration being offered to the creditors, which included the opportunity to elect to risk participate in the new money, debt pro rata to the amount of their common scheme claims. Those who were able to participate by taking the risk would get a valuable return. The judge was concerned that although such right was being offered to all creditors, the nature of the right meant that one could not realistically expect all scheme creditors to take it up. Consequently, he questions whether, in fact, it was an illusory right, given that non-fund or non-bank scheme creditors would not usually be in the business of providing such new money. It seemed to make sense to Justice Snowden in this respect that more value should have been given to the base scheme consideration rather than the enhanced scheme consideration being offered in the risk participation slice. So I understand that the issue was uh, one of fairness. What were the judge's comments on this? Justice Snowden went on to state that if what was being offered was a real right, one needs to ensure that adequate time is given to consider such rights in order to exercise it. It had to be capable of being exercised. All of the scheme creditors needed to be given a fair opportunity to consider whether they wanted to take up the new money offer, and if so, make the necessary arrangements to do so. He argued whether the current time allocated was too short given the fearsome and complex documents related to the scheme, which implemented the restructuring, especially as the other scheme creditors were coming to them cold. And what did the judge have to say about the ad hoc group and its fees? 
The judge noted the increasingly common feature of modern restructuring practices for the group of more active creditors to band together to form an ad hoc group and approach the company together to negotiate a restructuring deal. Such group will receive working fees. In considering the fees in Noble, Justice Snowden noted that they amounted to around $80 million, of which the ad hoc committee would receive $67.5 million, being almost 84%. The judge went on to explain that where any form of fees were offered to some, but not all of the scheme creditors, contingently on the scheme being sanctioned, the court would need to take a view on the materiality of the fees when judging whether the rights of the creditors who would not be paid the fees were sufficiently dissimilar that they could not consult together with a view to their common interest. If the fees are immaterial to the decision, the, the, the creditors can consult together. If they are material, they probably cannot. And what about the timing and complexity of the scheme? What did the judge have to say about it? The judge noted it was important that the court should not be taken for granted and its willingness to assist must not be abused. Consequently, the judge hearing a scheme should be given adequate time for pre-reading and for the hearing to consider what judgment to make. He explained that the court should not be presented with a metaphorical gun to the head, making the court responsible for the company's collapse. To this end, he reiterated that counsel should liaise with the listing office well ahead of time together with filing bundles and skeletons in advance, but that steps should not be arranged on a timetable that presumes the court will give its decision immediately. The judge finally explained that parties who did not comply in this way may find their hearing adjourned or taken out of the list, and if that imperils a scheme, that will be the consequence of the acts and omissions of the parties themselves. So what are the conclusions that can be drawn? What's the take-home message for insolvency practitioners looking to implement restructurings using English law scheme of arrangements? I think Justice Snowden has made it clear that the English court, when considering a particularly complicated scheme, will require that both the court and the scheme creditors are provided with sufficient time to consider documents. The judge's comments concerning the metaphorical gun to the judge's head highlight that the court will not allow itself to be held to ransom by the short or tight, tam- tight timetabling of the court's restru- of the company's restructuring. Active bondholders can take comfort that working fees paid to them for work done as part of an ad hoc committee will not necessarily, despite relatively material quantum, be sufficient to create a new class of creditors. Further, it appears that the upsides offered to scheme creditors, which will require require further capital injections, so long as they are offered to all creditors in a class, are acceptable, not creating classes issues. This also seems to be the case even if the scheme creditors are not involved in the business of lending money in the ordinary course. Thanks, Sean, and thanks everyone for listening to our podcast. We will be back in two weeks' time. Ciao!